The sermon today is taken from Romans chapter 2, verse 25 to chapter 3, verse 8. This is the word of God. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So, if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from men, but from God. Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jew were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are a judge. But if our unrighteousness serve to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Thus says the Lord. Let us pray for the preaching of God's word. Father in heaven, who are we, O oh Lord, that you are mindful of us, and that you care for us? Lord, we are so privileged that you have given us your word in a language that we understand and that you have given us opportunity to study it and to learn from it. Father, in our limitation, we know that not all things are understandable for us and we sometimes struggle to understand it. Father, I pray that you can guide us with your Holy Spirit that we may see the beauty and your truth through the passage that we we're going to be thinking about today. And it's a difficult passage, Lord. Guide your servant. May he preach faithfully to you. May your name be glorified this morning. And may those who are listening be affected by the Holy Spirit and come to worship you in a deeper way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 1, section 7, famously says that not all things in Scripture are equally clear. In fact, the Bible itself, in 2 Peter uh, verse three, chapter, chapter 3, verse 16, tells us that some of the things in Paul's writings are hard to understand, and the ignorant and unstable twist it to their own destruction. And, and it is certainly true of the passage that we'll be thinking about today. But in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 to 17, it says that all of Scripture is God-breathed. That God had intended every word, every part of the Bible to be there. And all of it is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So hopefully, we will see that this is also true of difficult passages, such as the one we'll be thinking about today. So we're continuing today in our series in the book of Romans. I'll be thinking about uh, Romans 2, chap chapter 2, verse 25, to chapter 3, verse 1 to 8. And in this passage, uh, there are mainly two things that are going on. 
Paul is concluding the point that he was making about the Jews that he started in the beginning of chapter 2. Then in chapter 3, verse 1 to 8, Paul takes a detour from the main logic of the book of Romans in order to respond to three objections that he anticipates could be raised against what he's been saying about the Jews. So there are four things that Paul talks about in this message. So we're going to do something crazy. And we're going to have four points instead of the usual three. So our four points. One, the, the true mark of the covenant community. Two, the value of being in the covenant community. Three, God's covenant justice. And four, a gross misunderstanding of the covenant God. Let me repeat that. One, the true mark of the covenant community. Two, the value of being in the covenant community. Three, God's covenant justice. And four, a gross misunderstanding of the covenant God. Let me just warn you guys beforehand that to really get what Paul's trying to say here, we need quite a bit of uh, background biblical knowledge. We need to be pretty familiar with our Bibles. And so if you're new to Christianity, um, this can be a lot of information. And it might take a lot of brain power to process. So I'm going to do my best to break it down, but please bear with me. So let's dive in. Point one, the mark of the true covenant community. So let's recap what's been said in the book of Romans so we can be clear on where we are here. Right? We're in the part of the book of Romans where Paul is building his case uh, to prove his thesis that he says in chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, that the gospel is the power for salvation for everyone. And the reason that Paul gives for this is that because everyone is guilty. Although God has revealed himself through creation, and although we know what is right because God has written his laws on our hearts, we still actively choose to suppress him to do what is right in our own eyes. Now, the church in Rome was a culturally mixed community that was divided in one basic way, that there were ethnically Jewish Christians and ethnically non-Jewish Christians or Gentiles. Now, if we've read the Old Testament, we would know that the Jews were a special people for God, right? They were the physical descendants of Abraham. And God had promised that through the descendants of Abraham, all the nations will be blessed. They were God's chosen people, a holy nation. A kingdom of priests, it says, and God's treasured possession. And also, God has spoken to them, right, to their ancestors, given them his laws. They've, God repeatedly saved Israel in the Old Testament, repeatedly showed them grace, and reaffirmed his faithfulness to them. So Paul, being an ethnic Jew himself, right, a former Pharisee from a family of Pharisees, can anticipate that the Jewish Christian church would be tempted to think that they are above the non-Jews, because their ancestors had this relationship, had this history with God, they assume that they're going to get some sort of special treatment from God. And in the passage immediately before this, in chapter uh, 2, verse 17 to 24, Paul completely shut that down and leveled the playing field. Because even though God has given them the law, as a whole, they have been hypocrites. And because of this, it says that God's name has been blasphemed because of them among the nations. They have not become a nation of blessing as they were meant to be. Instead, they have disrespected God and brought insult upon his name. Therefore, they are also guilty. So they too need the gospel. So in our passage, Paul tries to explain to them why they still need the gospel despite their Jewish backgrounds. And he does this through challenging their understanding of the sacrament 
of circumcision. Now you see, every Jewish boy to this very day would have been circumcised on the eighth day that he was born. Because circumcision is the physical mark that sets them apart as Jews. This practice was instituted by God in Genesis 17 with Abraham as a sign and seal of God's covenant with Abraham. It is the external reminder of their Jewish identity, right? For men as the chosen people of God. It's how they knew who they were. So if you were a Jew and you were circumcised, this means that all of the promises that God had made to Israel in the Old Testament apply to you. It means that you were God's, God's treasured possessions, God's people that he promised never to abandon. And so because you were circumcised, you'd feel pretty special right, and confident. How can you not be? And, be? and you would have known God's law and you would have heard what God has done for your people, the promises he's made, your ancestors. And because you were circumcised, you most likely would have observed all of the Jewish religious rites, uh, observed the weekly Sabbath, perform sacrifice in the temple, um, perform the festivals that were mandated in the scriptures. And because of this, you would be pretty assured that you would not end up like everyone else and face God's judgment. So in our passage, starting in verse 25, Paul totally burst their bubble, saying that if they do not obey God's law, their circumcision, the external sign of their submission, supposed submission to God's law, means nothing. They are as guilty as the circumcised, uncircumcised and will face judgment just like everyone else who breaks the law. Paul piles onto them here in verse 26-27 saying that if those who are non-Jews, the uncircumcised, if we come from the old, what the Old Testament calls an unclean people who worship worthless idols, who the Jews weren't even allowed to marry, right, which most likely includes you and I, if we keep the precepts or requirements of the law, will be considered like the circumcised, as God's people, as the Jews were meant to be. Meaning that the keepers of the law are the true members of God's covenant people. That means that we can be heirs of God's promise too, even though we were not born in any sense as a Jew, right? We're not anywhere related to Abraham physically. We can receive the blessing that God promised to Israel. No matter what background we have, where we come from, what ethnicity we are, we can escape judgment if we keep God's law. So these are stern words by Paul telling the Jews that if they believe that they'll be fine, even if they break the law just because what religion or what race they happen to be born into, the people whom they judge, discriminated against, and condemned, but are obedient to the law, will be the ones that end up condemning them along with the rest of the lawbreakers, for God shows no partiality. So Paul intends to unsettle the Jewish Christians in Roman church here and to get them to question whether or not they are really one of God's people. And for us Christians, God's New Testament people, it might be healthy for us to do the same. Right? So let's check ourselves before we wreck ourselves. Why do you think you're a Christian? Is it because you received the New Testament sign and seal? For God's people, baptism, were you baptized at some point in your life? Was it because you went to a retreat or kakaer one day and then came up when there was an altar call, prayed and asked Jesus into your heart and you even wrote down uh, the date on your Bible when that happened? Was it because you had some sort of religious experience 
while worshiping, when you felt something or experienced something that seemed supernatural and something even happened that you can't explain and you felt suddenly this indiscriminate peace and love and even started doing things like maybe you spoke in tongues? Or is it because you grew up in a Christian family and went to a Christian school and you've read the entire Bible, you've memorized a ton of Bible verses, your Instagram and WhatsApp bios are Bible verses. Maybe you even have a degree in theology and have something Christian tattooed on your chest. Don't get me wrong, right? Nearly all of these things are true of myself and all of these things indeed have been incredibly meaningful and valuable things for me. And remembering these things have certainly strengthened my faith, but my point is all of these things are external. You see, through this passage, Paul warns us Christians not to make the external things the grounds on which we call ourselves Christians. Because even if we have experienced or done these things and we still live deliberately to the stubborn, sinful desires of our hearts, we might not actually be who we think we are. We might not actually be members of God's covenant people. So the natural follow-up question to this would be, how do we know if we're a part of God's covenant people? Paul explains to us in verse 28 to 29 in his explanation of what being a Jew and what being truly circumcised means. He says that being truly circumcised and a Jew is not outward or physical, but it is inward, but a circumcision of the heart. Now, this phrase, the circumcision of the heart, is found in a new places in the Old Testament, but it was first used in Deuteronomy. There's one verse in the book of Deuteronomy that I think explains this concept most clearly. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. Let's read it. And the Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. You see, circumcision is a physical sign that someone is set apart to be God's. The circumcised person belongs to God. And so if your heart is circumcised, it means your heart, the core of your being, belongs to God. And so all your heart and all your soul loves the Lord. So Paul is teaching us here that the, the ones who are the true members of God's covenant community are not the ones who've done external religious things like circumcision because the letter of the law said so. No, but it is the ones who've experienced an internal change of heart. And this change of heart does not come through human effort, but it is an intrusive work by God, by His Spirit. It says, the Lord will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your offspring. And as a result of this intrusion, we'll be able to get over our sins and love the Lord our God with all our hearts and all our souls. This is the true circumcision, the true sign and seal of God's covenant people. In other words, the true member of the covenant community, God's chosen people, is that the Lord has done a supernatural work in us and by His Spirit such that we got to behold His beauty and be completely captivated by Him. God captured our hearts and the Holy Spirit made us taste and see that the Lord is good. And so we're moved not by the power of our will, but by just natural impulse. To love God with everything we got. And so, but how do we know if we've really 
been circumcised in our hearts by God's Spirit? How do we know if we truly love God with all our hearts and all, all our souls? I think the last phrase in chapter 2 is a very helpful tip, right? That our, our praise comes not from man, but from God. If the Lord is truly first in our hearts, He would be the ultimate source of approval. His opinion of us would be the only one that matters in the end. And we would reorient our lives willingly and happily around what would be pleasing to Him. Those of us who've perhaps been in love or are married know what I'm talking about, hopefully. That when we commit our heart and soul to another person, there is nearly nothing that we wouldn't do for this person, for the sake of this person. We'd be willing to put in a ton of effort, go above and beyond what is comfortable for us, even do something that we'd never normally do just to see the per this person smile, just so that this person knows that there's nobody else on earth that matters to us like they do. Likewise, this love for God that we have will move us to obey His law, something that we naturally don't want to do because we understand and have seen how lovely is the Lord, we would want to please Him. Right? We want to get over ourselves just because we know how much God appreciates it and just so that we can express to God how much He means to us. Now, this sounds simple, but in practice, it is a constant struggle because though our hearts love the Lord, we still live in a sinful world and live in sinful bodies with sinful desires. And because of this, we are constantly tempted and are prone to wander to please ourselves or whoever else that we believe could satisfy our souls besides God. Hence, in our imperfection, we'll eventually fail to love Him. But if our hearts have truly been circumcised, if we love the Lord, when we eventually fail, there is genuine grief and regret about it. And the sadness comes not from the fact that we might face some consequence in the future, but purely from the fact that we have disappointed and saddened the one that we love with all our hearts and all our souls. So although the circumcision of the heart happens once, whereby the Holy Spirit captures our hearts and causes us to love the Lord, the life of God's people on earth while we're here is, a, is one that is constantly denying ourselves in order that we do not grieve God with our sins. And it is also a life where we're constantly trying to serve Him so as God can look favorably upon our lives. So let's ask ourselves with brutal honesty, have our hearts been circumcised? Whose approval do we ultimately seek? Now, if we were the Jewish Christians in the Roman church here, what Paul have just said would have made us pretty uneasy. Because if we could be guilty and judge like everyone else, even if we were born a Jew, was circumcised, that all of the uh, Jewish religious things raised in a covenant community, and if what makes us actually God's people, right, God's um, covenant community, is not our work, but the work of the Holy Spirit, what, what was even the point of being born a Jew? What good is it? that you were born a Jew. And this is exactly what Paul's re responds to in the beginning of chapter 3. So, point 2. The value of the covenant community. So in chapter 3, verse 1, Paul poses 
this objection. And it, right? What advantage is there in being a Jew? What is the value in circumcision? Paul's answer in chapter 2, in verse 2, it is of great advantage because, first of all, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. Notice that Paul here begins with first of all, implying that there are more reasons. But Paul doesn't talk about them here in this passage. And it's not because he forgot them or got caught in the moment. Because later in Romans 9, we see Paul is taught more reasons why the Jews were used in a very special way in God's redemptive plan. But Paul wants to highlight this privilege specifically in this passage. It's the fact that the covenant community has access to the oracles of God or God's word. The covenant community was spoken to by God. God directly made, known him, made himself known to us in a special way. In addition to the general way, he's made himself known to all humans through creation, as we've seen in chapter 1. Right? In Bahasa, nggak cuma bisa tahu Tuhan, tapi bisa kenal Tuhan. And we have what God said on written record. And we have the responsibility to pass it down from generation to generation. It was first entrusted to the Jews and then to the apostles. And now it is entrusted in the church and we have it in the form of our Bibles. Well, it's a little different nowadays, right? Because the Word of God is easily accessible to everyone in a language that uh, we can use and even in a level of language that's convenient for us. Not so in the ancient world whereby if we weren't in fellowship with the Jewish community and neither spoke Hebrew nor Greek, it would be basically impossible for us to ever learn about God's word. Right? So how privileged are we, friends? And it's not just about being access to it. Right? Being part of the covenant community gives us the opportunity to be instructed and formed by God's word. To know with as much certainty as possible what the Lord requires of us to hear the wondrous works that he has done, to be aware of the promises of God, to understand his intentions for us and for the world. But, though we just learned, if the Spirit has not circumcised our hearts and we do not obey God's law and love the Lord, simply having and knowing God's word won't do us any good when facing God's judgment. But at least, if we were born in the covenant community, if we were born as Christians, from the very day we were born, we were disciples of Christ. Question is, are we like John, the disciple whom he loved, or are we like Judas, the one who betrayed him? Brothers and sisters, let us ask ourselves, have we taken advantage of the privilege? Have we intentionally sought God's word and read it for ourselves? Have you made the effort to come under its instruction and sought to really find what it means and see its truth in our lives? If not, then Paul is implying here that we're missing out on such an incredible privilege. Now, the Jewish Christians of Paul's time most likely hasn't missed out on studying God's Word. This wasn't really optional for them back then. And they would be familiar with what God has promised their ancestors in the Scriptures. Right, they would respond to Paul, okay, Paul, I've read the Bible, the Old Testament in their case, and I get that a lot of us broke God's laws, but didn't God say he will never abandon Israel and he promises all of this mercy and forgiveness, you know, the whole I will be your God and you will be my people thing? What happened to all that? Does that mean that God just bailed on us, that he didn't want to fulfill his promise, that God just changed his mind? 
And this is the concern that Paul responds to in verse 3 and 4. Right? So Paul frames this objection in uh, verse 3. Point 3. God's covenant justice. So Paul frames his follow-up objection in the form of rhetorical question. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? And Paul responds emphatically in verse 4. By no means or no way. He goes further. If everyone was a liar, even if everyone, not just some, are unfaithful, faithless, and guilty, and everyone is therefore condemned, God is still true and faithful. And Paul here quotes Psalm 51 verse 4 to make his point. The full verse goes, Against you and you alone, O Lord, have I sinned that you may be justified in your words and prevailed when you are judge. Now, Psalm 51 is one of the most famous psalms in the Bible, and it is a beautiful psalm of repentance that was written by King David after he committed adultery with Bathsheba. If you remember this season in King David's life, David was the greatest king in the history of Israel. He was a guy who God himself said was a man after his own heart, a hugely important figure in the Bible. But as the story goes, David fell into sin, committed adultery with a married woman, Bathsheba, and then got her pregnant, then conspired to kill her husband to cover up for his adultery. So God wasn't having any of that. And so God confronted David for his sin. And the consequence of this sin is that the child that was born out of this adultery died. And in repentance for his sin, David writes this psalm. And in the part that Paul quotes, David affirms what happened to him. His child dying was just. Even though David was special in the eyes of God. Remember, this was a guy who God himself said was a man after his own heart. Even though God made a covenant with David personally and promised to prosper and protect his descendant. Even though that's true, David didn't see the fact that God's judgment fell upon his sin as God's faithfulness being nullified because of David's sin, as the question in verse 3 charged. Just the opposite. The fact that God judges sin showed David that God is a truly righteous God who is faithful to his word. That the judgment of David's sin actually magnifies God's truthfulness and bring him glory. So here is what Paul is trying to point out. Right? That God's faithfulness is not seen only in the salvation of the righteous, but also in the righteous judgment for sin. All right? And personally, for me, this seemed pretty counterintuitive for a while, right? Because in my mind, the right thing for a good and loving God to do is just always to be merciful and just forgive everyone. Like, how can God punish someone who he loves so harshly? Like David, he lost his child. And my assumption and the assumption of this objection is that because God is a loving God and he said he's going to love us, he somehow owes us mercy. Now, this grace, I took for granted that forgiveness and mercy is a grace. He does not have to give it to us. But what God must do is punish sin because a perfect and holy God cannot tolerate sin. 
And because I myself sin, co sin constantly and live in a world where sin is not only tolerated, but sometimes glorified, I can become desensitized to sin. Right? So I can never truly comprehend how truly unacceptable sin is in the eyes of God. But though God's nature demands justice, and our sin demands punishment, God took on flesh and was born as a human, lived the perfect and sinless life, and Jesus took the punishment that was meant for us on himself on the cross so that we don't have to get what we deserve for our faithlessness, death. And in so doing, God does not betray his justice, but still exercises righteous judgment, and at the same time, his promises to forgive and restore are proven true. This is the gospel. So brothers and sisters, we must remember that God does not owe it to anyone to forgive. He went above and beyond what he must do for our sake. Now usually in CCC, we would end the sermon right there after the three points and the gospel, hallelujah, amen. But unfortunately today, specifically for this text, we can't. Because there is one more objection that Paul needs to respond to before he continues on the main thought of the book of Romans. Point four, a gross misunderstanding of the covenant God. So we see again in verse five to eight, Paul preemptively responds to another objection, which grossly perverts what he's been teaching. And Paul frames his objection in two ways. First in verse five, if, like David, our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, doesn't that mean that God is unrighteous for being wrathful towards us? Right? So they'd be like, okay, Paul, so if God benefited from our unrighteousness, wh why is he mad? Doesn't that make God the unrighteous one for being mad at someone who helped him out? And the suggestion that God is unrighteous is so completely ridiculous to Paul that he has to put in a disclaimer, right? I am speaking in a human way. So Paul's response here again is by no means, no way. Because if God was unrighteous, it would be impossible for him to judge the world. Now, if we uh, were listening to this and we grew up as a Jew, as Paul's listeners were, we would believe that God exists and he would judge the world. And the role of the judge is to declare what is right and wrong. So by virtue of the fact that God will be judge of the world, whatever it is that he judges is by definition right. In other words, there is no standard higher than God by which God judges or by which uh, we can judge God. God's character defines righteousness itself. He doesn't only make the rules. He is the rule. If you have um, gone to the membership class at CCC, one of our elders, Gray, he uses this great example of a meter-long ruler right? that um, at some point in history, there was one ruler that was declared to be one meter, and then all other one-meter rulers after that will be uh, judged based on whether or not they can conform to the original meter-long ruler. Gray, if I botch that example, I'm sorry. But this is what Paul is trying to get at here. 
right? That God Himself is the definition of righteousness. So that's why the idea that God could be unrighteous is utterly ridiculous to Paul. And the second way that this objection can be framed is in verse 7 to 8a, right? If through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil so that good may come? Right? It's basically saying that if by sinning, for example, by lying, we're basically doing God a favor, why are we the bad guys? And shouldn't we just keep on doing it so that more good can come to God? Right? And Paul is so appalled by the fact that, that one could conclude th these things from what he's teaching that he calls it slander. And he doesn't even really respond to them, and he just sternly concludes that if we think this way, and, or, or accuses Paul of, of thinking this way, our condemnation is just. And why is this condemnation just? Right? Because such conclusion reveals the heart of Paul's accuser. That they do not love God, but love their sin so much that they would rather rationalize sin rather than repent of it. As what Paul was really suggesting that they would do. You see, the premise of this objection is the same as the first. But this the iteration is focused on the ethical implications of what Paul is talking about, whereas the first one is talking about the implications to God's character, right? Because behind both of these uh, iterations of the same objection is the ethical assumption that the ends is justified by the means, right? That the means justifies the ends. If, in the end, what we did benefits God, Therefore, it would be wrong for God to be wrathful towards us. So God has no right to condemn us as sinners if we bring him glory. In fact, we should sin more because in the end, it does good. So it's a win-win situation. We get the sin, God gets glory, right? So such a person is clearly not at all concerned with the, the glory of God. They just want God to excuse them for their, their sin. They want this transactional relationship with God whereby they expect to get something from God if they do something good, right? And in this case, what they want is a pass for their sin. And, and what this objection takes for granted is how disrespectful sin is to God. That God hates sin. He hates sin in the strongest possible terms. There is nothing that God hates more than sin. And if we're willing to disrespect God and to do what he hates, what this clearly shows is that we do not love God. So our hearts have not been circumcised and we stand condemned. And brothers and sisters, we must never forget how costly it is for God that forgives our sin. Right? He hates sin so much that he is willing to condemn and destroy his beloved creation because it's been corrupted by it. It's like if you buy really expensive A5 grade 9 marbling Wagyu steak. If it's rotten, it's got to be thrown out. And he would have been glorified by it, right? By condemning the world that's corrupted by sin. But out of his grace, out of his eternal unfailing, unending love for us. He chose to send his son to take his condemnation in our place so that our corruption may be taken away 
that we can be made holy. So how can we take sin lightly? Now, we all, we all, including me, we all struggle with sin. But if we truly love God, the important thing is that it has to be a struggle. That our sin is something that we utterly hate about ourselves. Something that we never want to be comfortable with. And we deeply want to cleanse ourselves of for the sake of God. God's chosen people ought not to see sin as normal or as a simple quirk, but a fatal flaw and a disease. The circumcised of heart does not seek to rationalize sin, but to repent from it. As such, in Hebrews 10, verse 26, 29, the author of Hebrews gives us a haunting warning that if we deliberately keep on sinning, we have trampled underfoot the blood of the covenant, the precious blood of the covenant that was shed for us, that was meant to sanctify us. So there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume. But on the other hand, Paul says later in Romans, in chapter 8, verse 28, that God is working in all things for the good of those who love him. So if you're listening today and you're still exploring Christianity and you don't love the Lord yet, how could you? You don't know him. Ask Jesus to be your Lord. Circumcise your hearts. Believe in the gospel and he will show you that he was worth loving with all your heart and all your soul. Let's pray. Father, we can never comprehend the depths of your love for us and how unfailing your patience is to us. Though we defiantly defy you daily and constantly in our thoughts, intentionally or not, you continue to bear with us, Lord, to bear with our disrespect. Father, I pray that you can give us an insight into the depths of our sin and that you may draw us to you that you have circumcised our hearts, Lord, and caused us to love you. Replace, Lord, the love that we have for our sin, for the love of you. Show us that you are worth loving, and that only through loving you will our souls truly be satisfied. In your Son's name we ask. Amen.